Glad to have you in with us in this hour. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. What a day this has been. And uh, we are still saddened, of course, by the passing, the transition of the late, great Harry Belafonte at the age of 96 earlier today at his home on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. As I mentioned earlier in today's program, in case you missed our first hour, which was a rich dialogue, uh, in tribute to Mr. B. Um, he was a dear friend of mine, as many of you know. Uh, and uh, tomorrow on our program, in our third and final hour, the entire hour will be dedicated to Mr. Belafonte. Uh, and we will be playing uh, clips, uh, some great audio clips of many of my conversations with him over the years uh, of my broadcast career. Just uh, honored to be able to call him a friend. You could never imagine as a kid growing up in Indiana uh, that I'd one day know Harry Belafonte ever meet Harry Belafonte much less um, regard him as a as a friend and brother so tomorrow in our third and final hour uh, a tribute to the late great Harry Belafonte dead now at the age of 96 in this though our final hour today are American colleges and universities truly the engines of progress and innovation uh, that they're often portrayed as or are they becoming parasitic entities that enrich themselves at the expense of of the communities that surround them. Think USC here in Los Angeles, for example. Joined in this hour by urbanist, cultural critic, author and professor Devarian L. Baldwin, who I'm pleased to welcome to this program. Dr. Baldwin, how are you today, sir? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. It's my great honor to have you. Glad we've got the hour a whole, whole lot to unpack uh, in in this regard. Let me do this. We've got an hour. Uh, I know oftentimes okay. guests come on this program and they're so used to speaking in sound bites because of the way the media works these days. They forget uh, <laughs> that I'm Tavis and I got an hour and I invited you on to unpack this thing and I want to I want to I want to delve into it. So don't feel pressed uh, by the clock. Number one. So okay. I, I want to just—I say that because I want to just uh, stand down for a second and give you a moment to make your argument, to offer your yes. critique about uh, how these universities, these colleges, uh, are, are again um, becoming um, parasitic entities that enrich themselves at the expense of all the, uh, oftentimes, people of color, communities of color uh, that mm-hmm. surround them. Again, I, I didn't mean that comment about USC as a dis per se. I just want to uh, say to this audience, uh, this station is, of course, heard across the nation, but we're flagshipped in L.A. And in L.A., everybody knows exactly where USC sits. Uh, and right. then, So think of everything around uh, University of Southern California. And now you get a, a, a picture, an illustration of what Dr. Baldwin is going to talk about and what these institutions often do, the impact they often have to the surrounding communities. That said, I stand down. I pass the mic to you. Take your time. Make your case. And I'll interrogate it after that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So, I mean, the thing, the fact of the matter is that right before our eyes, colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and get this, even policing agents mm. in major cities and college towns all across the country. That's a fact. And it's not just an ivory tower phenomenon, it's enti- across the entire cities and towns, including uh, you know, L.A. County and L.A. in particular, where USC, as you mentioned, they are the biggest private employer in the county. So with this kind of influence comes the possibility that universities make cities and towns better. Innovation, places to work, place to live. Um, but as these institutions have become today's factories and our cities have become their factory towns, there was a cost for those living in what I call the shadows of these ivy towers. 
as campuses expand into our communities, they also raise housing costs and displace residents in the neighborhoods of color that largely surround campuses. As they have a broader control over our labor, they can lower wage ceilings and suppress collective bargaining efforts for entire cities because they're the biggest employer. Mm. Nonprofit university medical centers, they emphasize profitable boutique services, uh, high-profile research, or prioritize student services to the detriment of indigent care that's a precondition for the tax exemptions. Mm-hmm. And finally, campus police forces, they surveil and profile the very same residents and are rarely held to public account. So this is a great story about university expansion and growth, but largely that growth and prosperity is extracted from the black and brown and poor white communities that surround these campuses. Uh, I appreciate the uh, the foundation that you've laid. Uh, I know exactly where to go now, and we will uh, when we come forward. I, I've got more questions than I can even spit out uh, as fast as they're hitting my <laughs> mind. Um, so I'm, I'm delighted to be joined in this hour by Dr. DeVarian L. Baldwin. We are going to interrogate what these colleges and universities are doing, as it were, to the communities uh, in which they sit. Uh, a lot to unpack in this hour when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Broadcasting live from Lamar Park, USA. USA. Welcome USA. back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. He is Dr. L. Baldwin. We're just getting started really in this hour as we uh, interrogate uh, the roles that these colleges and institutions, colleges and, and, and universities are playing uh, often in communities of color when they just sort of take over everything. Uh, what is the impact? It seems to me, Dr. Baldwin, that so often in this city with USC and other institutions all across the country uh, that find themselves similarly situated, um, that as these colleges expand, as they grow, as they buy everything up, as they as they engage the list of things that you unpacked earlier that they often do, these institutions, I think by nature of the fact that they are institutions of higher learning, seem to always be celebrated but never challenged. Does that make sense to mm, you? Very much so. I mean, we presume, as by the nature of what they provide, education, that they are a public good. Mm-hmm. But it's precisely their status as public good that's a gateway to their ability to extract public resources for their own private interests. Mm. Even in the tax code, so they are identified as nonprofits, 501c3, I know you know that term. Mm-hmm. What that means is that then as they as they accumulate more and more property, all that property is property tax exempt. So then when they partner with private investors who understand the hustle, Eli Lilly, Google, Bombardier, GM, State Farm Insurance, these private companies invest and put their laboratories on these campuses, and that provides them with a financial tax shelter. And then that burden it's passed on to the host communities mm. because what do taxes pay for property taxes? They pay for public schools. They pay for uh, snow removal or trash removal, depending on where you live. They pay for, pay for the maintenance of the electrical grid. And so all of these resources that normally come from property taxes are not being paid for by the biggest landholders in our communities. And so then if you are a small business owner, if you are a homeowner, even if you are a renter, all those costs get passed on to you. Mm. Some of these institutions like uh, USC are private institutions. Mm. Others are public, like USC, UCLA across town here yep. in L.A. Right. But without regard to whether they are public or private, they all, to your point, engage in this hustle. 
Um, yes. to, to that end, what extent across the country are these institutions that oftentimes do harm to the greater communities around them, to what extent are they aided and abetted by government, by public yes. monies? Yes. So what happens is that, for example, I mentioned earlier about the tax code. That's one element of being aided and abetted. Mm-hmm. Another element is that easily what the argument is, is that these lands are being used for educational purposes, even when they're not, even when they're the site of for-profit uh, uh, research that will be brought to market and come back to the university in the form of royalties. That is never evaluated. So every, every community, every city or county has an assessor or an assessor's office. Mm-hmm. Those offices could easily go into these universities and assess the land use and see if these lands are actually being used for educational purposes or not and tax them accordingly. But we don't. Mm-hmm. We allow them to go on aided and, and abetted to not do the work that actually serves the public good. And on top of that, the land is, is tax-free. The endowments they accumulate on the land is, is tax-free. And much of the research that they do and, and perform on the land that is sent out to market and comes back to the university in the form of royalties is also free. Mm. So all this prosperity that is being hoarded on these campuses is largely being facilitated by public dollars. Mm. In that regard, they're not very much different than these professional sports teams who do the same thing. They, they right. insist that the government build them a new stadium, and we do this all the time, and we, we get mm-hmm. precious little out of it. Um, again, because they're, they're, they're performing a public good, uh, e.g. Right. education, they seem to get away right. with it. Uh, and for that right. matter, so do these sports teams. But at least the story is written when these sports teams press these cities um, right. that aren't filling potholes, that aren't doing a lot of other things. <laughs> but they will give you a bunch of money to build a stadium, uh, and the argument is that it's good for the city financially long term. Here, here's, here's the point I'm pushing toward here. Sure. Um, it troubles me, and I want to just take your temperature on this. It troubles me with regard to this subject matter about the, 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 the role, the outsized role that these institutions, colleges, and universities play oftentimes in communities of color when they come in and take over everything and start expanding like nobody's business. Um, mm-hmm. here, here's the here's the problem for me, Dr. Baldwin. Um, <laughs> the same communities, the, the communities that, in which they sit, more often right. than not, are communities of color, number one. Yes, yes. Because they ain't going to let this happen in Beverly Hills. It, it ain't going to happen in, right. in, in Westchester, uh, uh-huh. in, in New York. It ain't going to happen in, in, you get my point. All right. Yes. So they, yes. they're oftentimes situated in communities of color. But here's the rub for me. They're mm-hmm. in communities of color. But they ain't got no colored folk in their administration. Right. They ain't got no That's colored right. folk on the board of trustees. That's right. And the student body population ain't nowhere near colored. That's right. And yet they situate themselves in communities of color. And oftentimes mm-hmm. the communities around them get damaged. They get pillaged. They get disrespected. They get disregarded. It's the point that you're making. But those same people of color can't get any respect on the campus in any of those roles or beyond. I digress. That's my read from the outside. You're the expert. What's your read on the inside? No, you're, you're totally correct here. And, and, and it gets even deeper than that. Because when you push back on these institutions and say you're actually not serving the public good, that triggers all of your tax exemptions and financial capacity. The response is that, well, we, we educate. That's what we do. That's the reason why we have this public good exemption and and support. Yeah, but but yeah, 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 but 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 who are you educating? Who are you educating? That's the question. Well, no, no, you're you're right. You're right. And so even beyond just black and brown folk, more broadly, 
these institutions are are increasingly more and more exclusionary. Mm. They're actually more highly rated for how many people they reject than how many people they include or they bring into the admissions classes. Mm-hmm. Their rankings go up for these purposes, right? So that's the number one. That's the number one problem. On top of that, to generate more money, the state schools will prefer to bring in students from out of state or internationally because they can charge them a higher rate. So it just shows the degree to which these institutions are much more about a financial arrangement than they are about serving the public good. Mm. And yet it's these states and these communities that provide them these tax exemptions. So the alignment is all the way off, not just along racial lines, but just in terms of the basic claims that these institutions make for triggering their financial support from our, our states and our communities. But to get to your point more directly, yes, they are in black and brown communities. We're talking about uh, South Central, West Philadelphia, East Baltimore, New Haven, Southside Chicago, Atlanta. These schools are in black and brown communities, and yet their diversification of their faculty, their staff, and their students is grossly, embarrassingly low. Mm-hmm. No question. Mm-hmm. Um, you have argued heretofore, which I wanted to have you on this program, that what ultimately these institutions are doing, these colleges and universities, uh, ultimately doing is plundering our cities. That is a strong right. and damning indictment. You've made the case. Uh, I assume you stand by the fact that they are plundering our cities. Yes. Right. No question about it. So, for example, just a couple of examples. Uh, in 2016, the black neighborhood, historically black neighborhood, the Witherspoon Jackson in New Jersey, they were realizing that, wait a minute, our taxes, our property taxes are going up. These are, home, these are black homeowners. Mm-hmm. Our property taxes are going up, yet we see no improvements in our community. Why? Some research they discovered they are sitting, they were sitting next to these luxurious uh, campus buildings owned by Princeton University that was housing high profile, high profit research from the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. Mm. The university making money in royalties, Eli Lilly making money because they're not paying taxes on their overhead, yet the community is getting shafted. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not, but it's not, it's not just private universities. Go to Tempe, Arizona. The biggest private development in the state of Arizona is a state farm insurance headquarters. It pays no taxes because it sits on Arizona State University land. Mm. Right? So that, these issues. In uh, University City, Missouri, a, a racially mixed community right outside of St. Louis, Washington University of St. Louis what, had a campus in the primarily affluent white neighborhood of Clayton. They stopped it from growing anymore. So the university moved to University City. So as they began to buy up single-family homes, they were converting them into dorms. So every room would be its own individual unit to extract more wealth. What is due to the long-standing communities that lived in University City? It raised property values so that single families couldn't afford to live in these neighborhoods anymore because the land values were so much higher mm. as Washington University cut up these single-family homes into many dorms, making the whole neighborhood unaffordable. Mm. Right? These are, these are the things that happen in these communities. And then on top of that, these universities, they pull their low-wage labor from the same neighborhood. So I'm not talking about faculty and staff. I'm talking about groundskeepers, security, mm-hmm. cafeteria workers. So they don't even allow them to, to, many cases, to union organize. Or they pay them on a nine-month cycle and put them on furlough over the summer, whereby they can have a full-time job and still be eligible for public assistance working at a university. Mm. So the point here is that these conditions that surround these campuses make these neighborhoods ripe for extracting tax wealth, 
wage wealth, health care wealth, and we haven't, we haven't even talked about policing yet. Mm-hmm. Trust me, we're we getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I can promise you that. Um, <laughs> why, why is it, before we get to that, why is it that, and I'm not naive in asking this question, but I want to just get your take sure. on it. Why is it sure. then that in all these places across the country you just mentioned, including L.A., Right. That local elected officials, uh, state elected officials, um, mm. basically give these institutions everything they're asking for. I mean, it's 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 almost that these institutions are never told no by the right. local governing authorities. Why is that? I mean, just to give you an anecdote, when I when I was doing my research on Southside Chicago, I was I, I you know some anonymous wor- uh, uh, staff talked to me about how the business works. Mm-hmm. They say when an investor comes into the city, they don't even go. To City Hall, they come to Chicago to find out whether it's okay for them to build. Mm. That's the kind of power these institutions have amassed in our communities, in mm-hmm. our cities right now. Mm. And and the point is that a lot of times, elected officials are alumni of these institutions, so they see their interests more aligned uh, with these institutions mm-hmm. than they do with the communities which they they're, they're voted elected to represent. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is that on the surface level. Let's just be clear. If you're coming from an affluent white or even sometimes affluent black neighborhood and you have a university building in your community that's going to bring in investment, laboratories, retail, uh, high end housing, you're going to see that to your benefit. And you're not going to really examine, well, who was there first? Who was maintaining that community when there was violence or, or economic depression? And therefore, who's going to be displaced when the housing values rise above the means of the, of the grandmamas and the aunties who have been holding it down for a decade or two when we come in here and build up the Obama library in Woodlawn. Let's, let's just call a spade a spade. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. When those housing values rise up, they're going to be pushed out. And because you want the coffee shops and things of that nature, like we do too, we want all of that. But when the housing values go up and you don't build affordable housing to keep those communities, like what's happening right now in West Philadelphia, because UPenn is buying up everything and the laboratories are, that follow come, they want to, in the lab tech and the, in the bioscience world that come behind them, want to buy a property behind them. We're not, we don't care about the community that held it down for two or three decades. Yeah. Let me, let me follow you because you went there. Uh, and I ain't got a problem going there either. Uh, as this audience well knows. Um, but I think the country is writ large is not really aware of the fight that took place on the south side of Chicago when Obama decided to build that library there, his presidential That's library. Right. It was right. it was an ugly fight. It was a vicious fight. Uh, the yep. folk, Many of the folk in the community were against that. Um, but because he is Barack Hussein Obama, right. because he's the former president, uh, yep. and because all the local officials were, for the most part, uh, on his side, Right. They, they pushed this thing through. Uh, but in the three yep. minutes, in the three minutes I have before news, traffic and sports will continue on the other side as necessary. But for those who don't really know what happened in that fight in Chicago, when Obama pressed to put his library in this particular location and folk were going to be displaced and removed, et cetera, et cetera. Tell the quick story of what that fight was all about and how, how it went down in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it was a vicious fight and it was a hard fight because many in the black elite and their white peers was like, how dare you go against Chicago's own son, Barack Obama? Mm-hmm. Uh, black folk pressed back against it. They talked to him. He dismissed their claims and concerns and said, you know, hey, you know, this neighborhood is so depressed. Gentrification ain't going to come here. You know, there's all these empty lots. Maybe when my daughters have children, it might come. But people saw immediately when the Obama library was announced, developers and investors flew down to war-torn Woodlawn 
and began buying up properties. It became the third hottest neighborhood in the city in a matter of months. And those communities had legitimate reasons to be concerned about being displaced from that neighborhood. And it happened. And it's happening. But to their credit, with the, with the help of their uh, older woman, they've been able to fight back. They've been able to get 20 lots and be able to hold them for affordable housing. But it was vicious. And they made it very difficult for these neighborhood residents to be able to stick and stay. And they made it seem like that we were against development. They were against economic prosperity. And they put Obama's face on it. But what was behind him was big money power developers, politicians that did not care about those residents. Yeah. Um, I don't care whose face it is. You look behind it. You do enough interrogating. You're going to find big money. You're going to find big business. Uh, and that that's the tragedy. Um, but it gets it gets advanced as a library um, honoring the former president. And I ain't mad at him. I ain't hating on him for that. But this location, there are all kinds of places in Chicago where this library could have gone if it wanted to be in Chicago. But again, they won't let you put that in their neighborhoods, but they'll come over here and displace everybody, move everybody out, tear all kind of stuff down to put it over here because they know you don't have the capacity to fight back successfully. I digress on that point. I thank Dr. Baldwin for explaining that story uh, to those who may not have heard all the drama that ensued when he announced where he wanted to place his library when we come forward i want to spend the rest of this hour uh playing devil's advocate i've got a list of uh, about a dozen things here uh that i've noted uh, and written down uh that i want to uh push uh, dr Baldwin on with regard to the arguments that these institutions might make were they a part of this conversation they are not but i'm going to act like i'm the president of one of these institutions uh that's pillaging uh and plundering our cities uh and uh, we got some fun when i push back on him and and, uh, and pull the best out of dr baldwin with his defense of his particular uh, point of view and framework laid out at the top of this conversation you're listening to dr devarian l baldwin and tavis smiley on kbla talk 15 talk 1580 where hate meets a scholarly match hey, hey. I'm Tavis Smiley. We're glad to have you on uh, listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, one final reminder before this uh, program wraps in about a half hour or, or less. Um, tomorrow, uh, in our third and final hour, uh, a tribute to uh, the late, great Harry Belafonte, who passed away today at the age of 96 at his home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You do not want to miss what is going to be a beautiful tribute to him, I, I believe, uh, tomorrow in our third and final hour. We continue in this hour with our guest, Dr. Devarian L. Baldwin. Um, as we talk about uh, the role that these colleges and universities play uh, when they are situated uh, oftentimes in communities of color, we are asking uh, in this hour, are these colleges and universities truly the engines of progress and innovation uh, that they uh, purport to be or that they are often portrayed as, or are they becoming parasitic entities that enrich themselves at the expense of the communities? in which they sit, the communities that surround them. He's made a strong case uh, for why and how these institutions of higher learning are plundering our cities. Uh, and now I want to spend the rest of the hour, as I promised, just sort of pushing him and pricking him and probing him on uh, on the arguments that these institutions might make were they a part of this conversation. So I'm going to do my best to, to, to play like uh the president of an institution and defend my institution against the arguments of Dr. Baldwin. Dr. Baldwin, are you ready, sir, for round one? I'm ready. Got All right, go. let's go. Um, you mentioned police early. Let's jump there first. Private yeah. police forces uh, are often uh, a common feature of many institutions, uh, as you well know, colleges, universities, and they are necessary, they, we, they argue, 
or I am arguing in their stead, they're necessary to ensure the safety of students and faculty. Uh, and while it is true that police brutality is a serious issue that affects many of the communities in which these institutions sit, it's not unique to universities and should be addressed through a broader societal and uh, policy lens. All right, there's my argument. What's your pushback? Well, I would agree that the critique is much bigger than university police. But the fact of the matter is that we go to many cities and towns. The biggest police forces in these areas are campus police. Okay, so the question becomes, why are university police in the business of not just policing their campuses, but increasingly their surrounding communities? The reason is because they want to signal to families and their investors that the neighborhoods that surround them are safe for business. But then we look at what are they doing on their campus? You mentioned safe for the campus. What are the biggest crimes on campuses? Sexual violence and uh, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. These police do a horrible job of policing those crimes. Some would say they need more police. But the reality reveals it's not a matter of, of, of uh, capacity. It's a matter of intent. The reality here is that they under-police their campuses and over-police their outside communities mm. because no one wants to publicize that a white school is a campus full of white criminals. Mm. It doesn't fit the business model. Policing is not about safety. It's about branding. It's about financial management. It is not about safety. And as we know, uh, nine out of 10 stops writ large do not require an armed response. So why are campus police armed when it's universities that could actually begin to institute a police divest invest model, move away from armed policing and invest in food security, health security, trauma care, health care. If there's any institution in the world that could actually institute a police divest invest model, it's universities. Mm. Let's get to it. Let me press back one more time before we get to it. <laughs> um, so while these institutions do, in fact, have private police forces, as you've just underscored, they also work closely with local law enforcement agencies to maintain public safety so that by right. sharing resources, by sharing expertise, Dr. Baldwin, uh, they end up working better with local to police departments and ultimately better protecting the entire community. Your thoughts? Mm. Okay, if that was the case, then why do private, especially private, private, private universities are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act law? I hope mm. people know that. Mm. And so what happens is that their private police forces get that exemption as well. So if you really care about public safety, why are you allowing your private police to be exempt from FOIA laws? So with that, what happens? What happens is we have what students and faculty, black students and black community members have told me is a two-tier policing system especially with white schools in black and brown neighborhoods. You have a, a, a student and a resident committing the same infraction. The student goes before the, before the dean of students. The resident goes through the criminal justice system. If we're really about public safety, make it equitable across the board. Mm-hmm. Police your own students. Mm-hmm. Don't make a campus uh, uh, amnesty space for your students, for your branding, and then over-police the communities in a racial profiling manner to signal to investors and families that the neighborhood is safe. Police everyone equitably if you really want to believe in policing. Mm-hmm. And then if you really want public safety, get rid of armed police and invest in real public safety around housing, food, and trauma care and health care. 
Um, you suggested earlier in this conversation that many of these many of these institutions uh, don't allow their employees to unionize. Let me let me mm. offer my best pushback on that. Um, mm. So while these institutions may have significant power over their employees, they also offer many benefits and opportunities for career advancement. Moreover, they offer strong labor protections uh, and benefits, including health care, retirement plans, which can include uh, which can improve, I should say, improve the quality of life of their workers. You're a pushback. Ooh, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. OK, here we go. <laughs> OK, so so uh, Yale New Haven Hospital and Johns Hopkins Hospital, two of the most prominent hospitals in the world. Mm-hmm. Most of their black and brown low wage employees receive medical care from those entities. But the medical care is far above the means of the low-wage workers. Mm. So instead of offering low-wage, affordable health care, instead they charge the market rate. And when these workers, these black and brown workers, can't afford it, they will prefer to pursue a, a lien on their home or garnish their wages rather than provide equitable care. Mm. This on top of the fact that these medical centers, these universal medical centers, are allowed to be tax exempt under the condition that they provide indigent care to the surrounding communities. But they don't make their services visible. And, and instead of being equitable and transparent, they are allowed to self-report the kind of services they provide for these communities, and they don't provide them equitably. Right? That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing, go back to Johns Hopkins, but other schools. They provide um, housing subsidies for their workers. But instead of providing equitably, they've begun to shift their low-wage labor to subcontractors, so not directly employ them. So any protections and services that are provided by the university only are to the benefit of direct employees. Mm. As more and more of these schools begin to invest in subcontracting, those benefits do not transfer to the subcontracted employees. Another mechanism on the part of the university to extract wealth and to support their bottom line. Around policing, I've talked at length to black staff and black faculty who already talked to me anonymously about how there are skirmishes and conflicts with their white peers. And they say that including university police, that just exacerbates the conflicts when white peers call the police on their black peers in moments of conflict or skirmish. And they're held to greater account. First of all, they're not seen as faculty or staff. They have to walk around like students with paraphernalia to show student paraphernalia, you know, university paraphernalia to show that they belong. Or they'll be considered to be townies or outsiders or locals. Mm-hmm. And so these are the dynamics that people that, that, that the workers that the workers deal with yep. that are rarely discussed. Yeah, I've seen I've I've seen it myself. I've seen kids in the community harassed for riding their bikes through the campus, right? <laughs> Just riding right. their bikes, man, through their neighborhood mm-hmm. as they see it, and they get harassed by the local police there. Um, let right. me let me do this right quick. Um, talk. Let's talk R and D. So the yeah, reason sure. why yep. the reason why we let these institutions plunder our cities, to use your phrase, right. is because they give us R and D. They create new right. products and technologies that benefit society as a whole. Uh, that's that's right. why we allow this to happen, Dr. Baldwin. That's why we tolerate them. Makes total sense. So, But the point here is that the R&D, the, the funding of research and development, I think 80% comes from federal grants. That means out of our pocket, mm-hmm. right, to benefit our health and well-being. So if this wonderful R&D 
is going to be publicly funded, then why are the end products, Moderna, Pfizer, whatever, why are they sold at market rates at our insurances and make our deductibles go up? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't there be a consummate reduction in price if we're underwriting the research and development? Mm-hmm. And on top of that, this R&D is being done on tax-exempt land. So then when they're producing all this great discovery and, re- and reducing their overhead costs, that additional cost is paid by somebody. It's paid by us in the form of property taxes, in the form of our mill rate goes up for you homeowners. You know what that is. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say I'm getting my behind whipped here <laughs> by, by Dr. <laughs> Dr. Uh I'm doing my best. I thought about Mike Tyson a few minutes ago. Mike Tyson said everybody everybody got a plan until they get hit. So I, <laughs> until right. they get hit. <laughs> Everybody had a game plan, a fight plan until they got hit. Uh, I had a plan. It's not working so well, but I ain't done yet. I got a few more. I'm going to throw it at Dr. Baldwin to see if I can uh, press back on his formulation that these colleges and universities are plundering uh, uh, our communities. They are become becoming parasites that enrich themselves at our expense. We'll continue when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. Thank you. Updates. At Tavis Smiley, the conversation continues when we come forward. forward. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Dr. DeVarian L. Baldwin, I ain't done yet. I'm back, man. I got more. I'm going to keep pressing. Okay, okay, uh, I got okay, more for okay. you, man. So we talked <laughs> earlier in this conversation about the fact that these institutions oftentimes, colleges and universities in these communities of color, oftentimes get all kinds of tax breaks. Uh, to do the stuff that they do. Uh, but they are also major contributors to local tax bases, providing funding for public yeah. services like schools and parks and libraries. Mm-hmm. And so this can benefit both students and local residents by ultimately improving the quality of life in the surrounding community. Do you buy that argument? Yeah, I think that's true. They, they can improve the quality of life, but we have to understand that as they upgrade these communities, what that means is that the community that was once there no longer can stay. Wow. So if you, if you don't have protections around affordable housing, living wages, uh, equitable health care, the community they're serving are the ones that benefit them, the researchers, the students, and their families. And that's part of the problem. Also, on top of that, many times because of all the exemptions that they get for the work that they do, mm-hmm. many times with the, thing, the very things they're saying they contribute to you are actually coming out your own pocket. Mm. If we do an actual financial accounting, you know, the, 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 uh, the tutoring programs, the, the outreach, outreach events, because they receive so many tax benefits, it's actually coming from you. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do So let's, let's do a real accounting and say, okay, my, you know, subtract the exemptions and let's do a real accounting of what you actually contribute. I'm up for that. Let's, I would love to go into the books of all these schools and do that work. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, let me uh, let me try this. Let me try housing. See if I can convince yeah. you uh, of this. Um, right. So while these institutions uh, may drive up housing costs in these neighborhoods, they right. also create a demand for a wide range of housing options, from shall we say affordable student housing to luxury apartments, which ultimately can increase the supply of housing in some areas, making it easier then, not harder. For residents mm-hmm. to find suitable homes. Let me just make another argument while we're talking about housing. While they, yeah. while these institutions often, I will concede, for the sake of argument, uh, contribute to gentrification, again, they mm-hmm. also invest in affordable housing and other community development projects 
to sort of mitigate some of these effects. Do either of those yeah. arguments work for you? Well, I'll start with the second one first. Okay. If, if these schools are actually investing in affordable housing, I love to see it. I don't see it, mm. but I love this. I would love to see it because, and, and if they do, most any time that I've seen it, it's been a result of grassroots, black and brown, and poor white organizing. Mm-hmm. They don't do it out of the kindness of their heart. They do it because they've had pushback and they want to maintain a, pu- a good public image. Um, the first argument, the idea that, well, any housing is good housing because it's going to eventually create a surplus of housing at the bottom end. We saw during the pandemic and even to this day, that Yimby argument never works. Yeah especially for an institution like a university that can sit on their money for hundreds of years, they would rather sit on their money and let investment wash over the community than actually lower values to make them more affordable. There's a, there's a battle for your listeners all going on right now in West Philadelphia, where in 1959, when University City was built by Drexel, UPenn, and the hospital, mm-hmm. Student and community activists fought to make sure that whole area would have scattered site affordable housing throughout it. The universities and medical school did not do it. The one piece of affordable housing that exists to this day, UC townhomes, is under attack because UPenn and their outside uh, biomed and tech and software investors want to gobble up that entire neighborhood and make it a playland for their workers and their families. Mm. There are residents and communities fighting back right now to this day to hold on to that one small piece of affordable housing in a neighborhood that was supposed to have affordable housing scattered throughout the entire community. These are the consequences when you don't have public oversight, when you don't have uh, binding agreements with these institutions that work like companies. And that's the point here. These are not schools. In today's knowledge economy, these institutions are the factories of our knowledge economy. We don't have factories in the U.S. anymore. These entities are our factories, whether we, whether we mean high-end R&D or low-wage cafeteria work, they are the biggest employers and landholders. So we got to stop talking about them like they're just schools. Mm. And that's what we do. Nope, I take your point. Uh, I got one more argument. When we come forward, I'm going to try, try one more. Uh, my final argument that these institutions uh, can stimulate economic growth in these communities of color. I'll try that argument out on Dr. Baldwin when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud. loud. A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. Unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Let's right unpack now. a little bit more Dr. Devarian L. Baldwin. That's all we have time for. A little bit more. Four minutes left uh, or less in this conversation before we... Uh, wrapped uh, wrapped this hour. Uh, we've been talking in this hour, in case you just tuned in, about whether or not these uh, colleges and universities are truly the engines of progress and innovation that they try to advance that they are, whether or not they're pillaging and plundering uh, many communities of color in which they sit from California to the Carolinas. My final argument, uh, pushing back on Dr. Baldwin for the sake of argument, as I played mm. devil's advocate in this conversation, uh, is that these institutions uh, are major employers, to your earlier point. Right. They create right. job opportunities for local residents, both within the system and in associated spaces and in, industry, in, a, in a associated, try it again, Tavis, in associated spaces <laughs> and industries. I can't get my own argument all right. I, I, that's how bad I am at this. Uh, tried to make this <laughs> argument for these institutions. I can't even get my words together. Um, right. but, but ultimately, uh, they attract students. They attract researchers. They drive up demand yep. for local goods and services, right. which means ultimately they stimulate economic growth. Right. All right. And they do that. Okay. They do that for us for a very small sliver of our sec of our society. Mm-hmm. 
and let's be clear, Tavis. I am an, people can say, how dare you critique this institution? You work at one. You make money from one. Mm-hmm. I am an employee. I'm an employee of a, of a university. And my point is that the, the biggest claim to fame of universities is that we solve the world's most difficult problems. Mm. So for me, if you follow that logic to its final conclusion, why wouldn't schools want to solve problems that they have a hand in creating in their own backyards? Mm-hmm. So to your point about labor, okay, fine. You're a great employer. So allow collective bargaining rights. Insist on living wages and conditions for all campus workers and faculty. You don't pay taxes, right? So pay your taxes. There's a thing called a payment in lieu of taxes agreement. Sign a pilot, right? You have a university medical center. You don't honor your mandates of energy and care. Do it. Create community benefits agreements for any campus expansion that can include affordable housing mandates, zip code specific jobs, job training, scholarships. Um, allow for there to be a community-based zoning and planning board for all higher education-related developments that insist on common areas on campuses being open to the community mm-hmm. and being governed by a community charter. Um, schools throw away food every day. Why don't you package that food into healthy meals for communities in need that's around your campuses? Yeah. Finally, you know, we have these armed campus police. We know the statistics tell us nine out of ten police staffs do not require armed response. Yeah. Yet these schools are armed to the teeth. Yeah. So why not divest in campus police and invest in teams of preventive outreach and trauma care? The point here is that there are solutions. Mm-hmm. I am not just a critic. Yep. This is a there are easy solutions to these problems. I did uh, I did my best uh, to push back against his argument uh, in this entire hour, and yet uh, I lose and I lose miserably because his arguments are strong. Uh, and hard to argue with. Dr. DeVarian L. Baldwin is a leading urbanist, historian, and cultural critic, currently serving as the Distinguished Professor of American Studies and founding director of the Smart Cities Research Lab at Trinity College, and I am honored uh, to have had him on in this hour to talk about the role that these institutions are playing often in communities of color. Dr. Baldwin, I appreciate the conversation, man. Thank you for your insights. Thank you so much. And shout out to, to, to Saria Rigo from the Black Wealth Matters series who put us together. So thank you all so much. No, I'm glad we got together. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. It was a great hour. That is our show for today. Time now for the KBLA Midday Monday Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson, followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Nigel Roberts. Don't forget tomorrow in our third and final hour, a tribute to the late great activist Harry Belafonte. I'm Tavis Smiley. Until tomorrow morning, Lord willing, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.